Good morning. Another Ninja Mask Sunday, huh? Getting tired of playing Ninja yet? Getting, uh, getting a little old, isn't it? But I appreciate your continued cooperation with that. Uh, consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, which we are indeed. Uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, thanks for braving the Sunday morning and coming and joining us. Appreciate that. Um, we had a great worship and prayer night Thursday, like Jason already mentioned. Really appreciate those that participated in that and, and helped out with that. And also, if you could just join us, it was, it was a good time of seeking God's face was the reason we did that. We've been talking about, uh, you know, in, in Second Chronicles, when, when uh, God answered Solomon's prayer, and one of the things was, seek my face. And so we did that on Thursday, and, and uh, so far there have been uh, cries for more of that kind of a thing. So maybe that will happen in the days ahead. One other quick uh, f- uh, family business kind of a thing. Um, regularly, people will email uh, other people. We ha- uh, how, do, how do I say this? We have scammers who will pose as me and will email people in the congregation or people that they know I'm friends with on Facebook and they can guess their emails or figure it out. I don't know how they do that kind of stuff, but um, they... They're saying that, they're pretending to be me, and they're saying, hey, would you reply to this email? Don't call me because I'm in a meeting right now. Something like that. I would never do that to you, okay? Usually they're soliciting gift cards, uh, iTunes cards, things like that, saying like, hey, so-and-so's in the hospital, and I wanted to get him a gift. I'm wondering if you could do that for me. It's that kind of thing. And it's been going on for several years, but it and almost on a bi-weekly basis, it seems like, but it came up again this week. And so if you get an email from me that's full of religious language and stuff like that claiming to be me, look closely. Uh, my email address is jrquigley at mounthelena.org. If it doesn't come from that, you need to investigate more closely. So there you go. But if you do want to get me an iTunes gift card, you could do that. I wouldn't be too upset by that. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, please? We had a bit of a wild ride in the first service because I forgot my notes. So I winged it a little bit. We did okay. When you follow the scripture, it's hard to get too off track. But we're going to look at a story in Mark chapter 10. Uh, Some of you you at the the top of uh, chapter 10, verse 17, it says, The rich young man. And we talked about the importance of Scripture and the value of Scripture, the authority of Scripture to obey or disobey the Word, is to obey or disobey God, those kind of things all throughout the first few months of the year. We're establishing why the Word of God is very important. But a lot of times people, uh, they just kind of skim it or read it, and they don't get a lot out of it. And this isn't the main point of my message today, but as I'm going through uh, verse by verse through these Scriptures, and thinking about just different thoughts that came to my mind as I went through this. I hope you will take some notes in your own mind about when you read the Scripture, focus on one sentence. What is it saying? Why was, why was it said? What is the context going on here? How does this fit in the overall theme of Scripture? All those things that we talked about, about good biblical interpretation and those kind of things uh, earlier in the year. And I'm just going to do that today. Uh, just, just wanted to go through this story with you. It is kind of setting up Mr. Jeff Wald for next week. Jeff will be sharing out of uh, the last part of Mark chapter 10. And so I thought, well, I'll just take this story early in Mark chapter 10 and we'll, we'll just go through it and talk about some of the thoughts that, that come up. So we'll see how it goes, all right? Uh, beginning in verse 17, it says, And he was setting out on his journey. And as he was setting out on his journey... 
Who? Setting out on their journey. Jesus. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When I hear that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I think of the condition of the world. I think of what many people wrestle with when it comes to death. What happens after this? What is it like? Where am I going to go? It's sort of this uh, universal discomfort with the idea of death that we have because death wasn't part of how we were originally made. Death came on the scene because sin came on the scene. And I think there's something in us that is uncomfortable with that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, and I quote this all the time, uh, just because I love it, there's something about this that just it's rich, it has some depth to it and I just, just something my heart really appreciates. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time also he has put eternity into man's heart. He put eternity into man's heart yes, so, he, so that he cannot fathom or so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. There's this idea of, of Something in us longs for eternity, knows that there is some sort of eternal thing happening in our reality, but we don't necessarily comprehend it. Um, but, but God is wor- revealing himself and working that out, and we have a hope in this. See, this young man is running up to Jesus, and he's asking a universal question that the whole world really is asking in one form or another. What happens after this? Is this really all it's about? Is just this 70 years I get, or... More, Lord willing, and the crick don't rise. I'll get more years than that. There's, is there more to it? And I think that we as Christians have to remind ourselves that we can get into our day-to-day comfort with, great, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I don't have anything to worry about, but Jesus has actually called us to do something more, and it's to take this good news to people that are asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? pretty common question. Of course, it wouldn't be unusual for the Jews to ask this question. This obviously would be a young man, would more than likely be a Jewish young man coming up to Jesus and saying this. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who is from God, for no one who could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, notice that Nicodemus is not asking any questions here. He's just making a statement, and Jesus cuts right to the chase with Nicodemus and replies, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. He must have some questions or thoughts. Why is he seeking him out in the night? There's controversy going on in the world, and he's looking for answers. And I don't know if Jesus sees or knows what Nicodemus is thinking or wondering about, but he goes right after this issue. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And, and, and so then it introduces us to this idea. It goes on later in John 3.16, the famous passage that um, many know and had to memorize as kids. For God so loved the world. What did he do? He loved the world. What was his motivation? He loved the world, that he gave his only son. Who is his son? Jesus, that whoever would believe in him will not die, will not perish, will have everlasting life. This is this uh, cornerstone of our faith about what we believe about eternal life, about salvation, about the forgiveness of sins. See, the issue with sin is that you know, man is not good. Man is broken. And God has to save him. We'll look at that a little bit in a second. Jesus said to the young man, going back to the story in Mark, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
What an interesting thing for Jesus to say. I, don't, I can only speculate what he was really getting at in this situation, but why would you call anybody good? Only God is good, and he's making, giving us this painful reminder that mankind really cannot be good enough in and of himself. It's something that we come to understand. You can't earn your salvation. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't make God like you more. It doesn't work that way, but our human mindset is so much that way. And, and, but Jesus is God, so how could he... How could he uh, sort of decline that this young man called him good. And I think it's really important for us to understand how important and powerful it was that Jesus became man, that God became man and dwelt amongst us, that the word became flesh. This idea that God became man in order to identify with our weaknesses, it speaks to a deep compassion and a deep care and a deep love, the idea that he didn't have to do that. See, when you go back to the story of in the beginning of creation and man falling, the only just response for God would be to wipe out mankind. None of us would be saved. That would be just for God to do that. We're really uncomfortable with that idea, but it is true. We're all broken. We're all in sinfulness. We're all in rebellion against God in some way, shape, or form. But then God, in because he so loved the world, sends Jesus as the propitiation for our sin, as the atonement, as the one that takes that death for us on the cross. So what was meant to be your punishment, he takes on on the cross. Anyway, just a cornerstone idea of the faith of Christianity. But I think just what this one passage reminds me of is that no one is good. We know that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 8 let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We sang about that in the song this morning. Uh, God in the form of a helpless baby. It's like... Oh, it's hard to get our minds around that. Why would he do that? He does so to identify with you, to have compassion with you, to show you a better way. It's really important for us to, un un to uh, understand and, and um, really take comfort in the idea that God saw suitable to become like us in order to identify with us. Uh, I just, there's very little I can think of uh, uh, that's more compassionate and loving that God has done that he would be familiar with suffering like we are. Very thankful for that. You know the commandments, continuing on with the story in Mark. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So what does Jesus draw attention to, first of all? It's like, well, are you keeping the commands? Are you, bringing, are you being in alignment with who God is? God has brought these commandments to you. You've got all of this Old Testament law. You've got, are you in alignment with these things? Are you obeying God? And I think, you know, we could talk about those things. He's talking about some of the major categories here of the Old Testament, drawing attention to primarily moral-type character stuff. Basically saying, are you, are you being a decent person by obeying the laws of God? 
and doing as he commands. And it draws my attention today as I read this passage of Scripture to the value and the importance of obeying God. I think this is uh, considered optional by lots of Christians and lots of forms of Christianity, that it's optional, see? Because we know that we've been saved by grace, that we didn't earn it, that, that we couldn't work our way into heaven, and sometimes that leads us to then an imbalanced view that I shouldn't work at all. In other words, I, sh- I don't need to obey God. I don't need to do what he says. I'm good to go because he died on the cross. I'm not obligated to obey anything. And I think that's a gross misrepresentation of Scripture. But also we have other things in life where, you know, this is, oh, Jared, this has been going on for 2,000 years. It's kind of old news. Um, there's more modern things that we would uh, make in more important than God's Word. Um, like a particular book I read or a particular political view or social view or, you know, whatever I believe about business or those kind of things. And we can become numb to the fact that God has actually commanded things of us. He wants us to obey him. And not because he's just a slave driver. That's not the right view. It's because when we're in alignment with God, that brings blessing in life. Whether it's peace and comfort or forgiveness, direction, joy, those kinds of things. We want to be in alignment with God because we grow and are blessed because we receive from him. So it's not just God doing, do what I say because I'm the boss, but because he cares, because, he, because there's a benefit in it for us to be in alignment with God himself. So when I consider the commands that Jesus brings to this young man, I consider our own situation and whether or not, am I really obeying God? If I'm, if I'm coming to God every day and and praying to God, and if he asked me the question, Jay, are you keeping my commands? How would I respond to that? We still need to live in such a way that we obey God and then do what we're called to do. Grace is not there to allow us to disobey, but rather to empower us to live out our calling. Okay, let me say that again. Grace is not there to enable us to disobey. It's there to empower us to live out our calling which is an important thing to be sure we get into the foundation of our Christian thinking and our relationship with God because other thinking takes us in some pretty unhealthy directions. Uh, Brennan Manning was, uh, he was, a, he was a Franciscan priest, or he became a Franciscan priest. He went and lived in a cave by himself for a long period of time. He left the priesthood uh, Anyway, he had this to say, and many of you will recognize this um, from DC Talk, 90s. Who's with me? Okay. (laughs) We're getting old school now. You know that, right? All the kids are like, oh, you guys are so old. Well, this was a quote in in one of their albums, but it actually was a a quote of this man, Brennan Manning. And um, those of you that know Rich Mullins, he had the band called the Ragamuffin Band. He also, also got this idea from Brennan Manning, but... He said this, the, single, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Now, this is, not, this is kind of hyperbole. It's not something you can actually quantify. But it's something worth seriously considering and I think may have some substance to it. Is the, single greatest cause, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. In other words, what, what's Manning getting at here? The idea that we can profess to be something, but if we don't actually be it, we have no credibility with the world around us. 
And, and so this, this young man coming up to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is asking him about his life. What do you actually do with it? Are you obeying God? Are you living this out in a real way? And Manning challenges us with the same thing today. Although I, I don't know that I quite take as negative as a bent on here. I think it's a very real problem is that we profess to be Christian, but then we go out and we do things that are not Christian in the way we treat others, in the way we relate to the world around us, in the way we relate to our coworkers. And so we have to remind ourselves, who was Jesus? What did Jesus do? How did he set an example for us and that would uh, become our foundation for how we make decisions and how we treat others and, and those kind of things? And uh, God just, this is, this is actually a really important time in history to consider this truth. You know, when we're tempted right now to behave in very non-Christian ways because it's stressful and we're tired of playing ninja and all those kind of things and something rebellious rises up inside of us wanting to resist what's going on in the world. And we have to be very, very careful that the decisions we make about how we behave reflect Scripture, not self let God be God and not me be God, those kind of things. Are we obeying God in our lifestyle? Because what we do is when we do not do so, we deny him. We're denying who he is. We're denying his character. We're denying his ways, and we've picked up something else as our way of life. And it's really important to keep these things in mind as we journey through life. And I think that's an important question Jesus is asking this man. Are you living this out? If you really want eternal life, are you, are you doing these things? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm doing, I'm doing my best to do the right thing. No doubt he wasn't perfect. None of us are. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. What does that mean? I just, I found it interesting when I just take one sentence and contemplate it. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, he loved him. What, what did Jesus see in this young man? He, clearly, it would appear that he is being earnest. He's, he's, Jesus sees deeper. Jesus sees the heart. He's not, he's not asking this young man this question, just, hey, are you checking all the boxes and playing the part? But he actually loved him. He, I think he saw the heart of this young man, that he really was earnestly seeking him, and then he gives him this wise answer, you lack one thing. All right, so you're doing what you should be doing, but there's one thing you need to do. I wonder what that one thing would be for me. I don't think it would probably be the same thing. What would the one thing be for you? If Jesus said to you, there's one thing you're, you're missing here. There's one thing you lack. And in this young man's case, he says, go and sell all that you have and give to, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what does the young man do? Disheartened. Ugh. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. What did Jesus see? He looked right through to the heart of this young man. He saw that he was wealthy and that it would be very difficult for him to give up his possessions to serve Christ. He saw an idol. He saw something that was of greater value in that man's heart than God. And he loved him. He, the, guy, the guy was earnest, and so he challenges him with this thing. You need to lay this one thing down. You need to give away your wealth. And of course, he was disheartened. We don't know whatever happened to that guy. 
he probably was traumatized the rest of his life from that question. I mean, imagine what he had to wrestle through. Will I not inherit eternal life because I'm not willing to give up my earthly treasure? Am I going to be condemned because of this? He, he had to do some wrestling, and we don't know what the ultimate end of his story is. But Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult. Now we're, now we're uncomfortable. Because most of you probably realize, and I, I kind of beat on this thing quite frequently from the pulpit, that we are the wealthiest of the wealthy of the wealthy ever, all time. And I understand there's, there's a certain relativism in our society, and some of us have more than others, and there are poor people in our context and those kind of things. I don't, I'm not ignorant of those kind of things. But in the big scheme of things over time and history and over all the world, we really don't lack anything. We have everything we need. We have way more than we need. Those of you that have spent any time in foreign nations or poverty-stricken places, I just, actually, this reminds me of a story. I was in Romania. It was 2004, and it was an evening, and we were out in a gypsy village, and the kids were coming in from the fields over these hills, and they were they were singing and laughing and, and stuff like that. And I mean, we're talking a lot, lot more dire circumstances than what we live in, even in our poorest situations. And a friend of mine, Brad, was standing there, and I, I just had a thought, and I shared it with him. I'm like, are we any happier than these guys? For all that we have and all that is ours and all we possess, are we any happier than these poor kids in this gypsy village? And I would venture to say no. But anyway... We are very wealthy. And so this is applicable to us in a very specific way. And when it comes to the comforts of our lives, it's very hard to give them up. I, I'll put myself in that tough situation, and I was as I was preparing, preparing this message. If I go home this afternoon, and Jesus appears in my living room and says, JR, I want you to sell all this and go do such and such, that would be hard. It would be hard to give up my comfort. It would be hard for me to give up my convenience. I mean, nobody, if I said, how many of you would like to volunteer to plant a church in, you know, Timbuktu, Montana? It would be a pretty small amount of people. Why? It's hard. It's difficult to be sacrificial and give up the luxuries and the things that we want. But I don't think Jesus is saying here that rich people are going to hell because they're rich. There were many godly people that were wealthy. That's not the issue. What is he going after here? He's going after an issue of the heart, an unwillingness to lay down something of self. So in our circumstances, it might be wealth, but it might be other things. Things inside of us that we hold in an idolatrous place. And we talked about this in recent weeks a little bit. But the idea that when it comes down to making a decision about what I will do, what I will say, how I will respond, how I will live, how I will treat somebody, if I do not hold God in the highest spot of how I make that decision, then something else is God. Okay? If my political opinion, if my financial opinion, if my social opinion, whatever I derive that from is held in a higher regard than the scripture itself, then God is not God in my life. It's a very strong warning, if you will, in this passage about letting something else be God. Let something else drive your decisions. An unwillingness to lay something down of selfishness that we have. I think we see a lot of that in, in the, the, 
polarity in our political system right now, an absolute unwillingness to lay anything down of self, but to go 100% for everything I want now. And that just speaks of an absolute selfishness and an unwillingness to serve. And it's, it's, it's tough. It's making things very tough for the people, and it only seems to be getting worse. And we have to ask ourselves questions. What do I value, and why do I value it? If, is Jesus calling me to lay something down that's not of him? Are, is everything I think and believe of him? Is it, can I substantiate it by the Scripture? And if I can't, then what can I substantiate by the Scripture and by what God has said? If I cannot, I have a problem. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who could be saved then? And I think we all have that reaction reading up to this point in this story. It's like, wow, that's harsh. If it's as hard for a wealthy man to get through, get to heaven as it is for a camel through the eye of the needle, there's more to that, but can't get into it today. How could anyone be saved? Oh, I'm glad you asked. That's a good question. Because Jesus replied, with man it's impossible. With man it is impossible. You cannot, cannot, cannot save yourself. You can't do it. Jesus did it. What we have to do is put our faith and our trust in him. And that's not just praying a prayer that um, does something magic for us and then go on about our lives. It's about making him the Lord of your life, about placing your faith in him, your trust. And he's saying, this is impossible with man. Man can't work out his own salvation. Man can't get himself into the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. And indeed, it was possible through what Jesus did. Peter said to him, see, we have left, left everything to follow you. Here's the pinnacle of issue, the issue. Give it all away. Lay it all down. Give up yourself. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. This was Paul's perspective and attitude. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. This is sort of like the epitome of selflessness. I died. He even says elsewhere, I die every day. What's he saying? Every day I give up myself for what God has for me. I'm not standing up for my selfish things, what I want out of my life, what I'm going to do. I lay it down every single day to obey God and do what God wants me to do. But Christ, who lives in, lives in me, and that is the way we want it because that is how we inherit eternal life. It is how we have relationship with God, by laying down self, dying to self, dying to us, and letting him live through us. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul's no stranger to this. He did leave everything to follow God. And he put himself at risk constantly in all kinds of cultures. He was very controversial locally to many people because of what he was willing to do to extend the gospel. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Again, I'm Another thing that Jesus says in, in Mark, and, and it, it sounds like a similar thing here. You've got to give up. Give up yourself and live for Christ according to his way. And he said, 
to all. If anyone, must come, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, more painful, confronta- this is confrontational communication to us. Because we have to wrestle with the reality of whether or not we actually do that. Taking up the cross and following it. Am I taking up the persecution and the laying down of myself and pursuing things that maybe aren't easy for me for the cause of Christ? It's a little heavy, isn't it? And yet that's what his grace and his mercy and his love is for, that we might be empowered to do so well and with great joy. I often argue that you will not live a more satisfying life than a life for Christ. We think that we'll gratify our souls with self-living. Boy, if everything would just line up to the way I think it should be, then I'll be happy. And yet there's nothing that can replace who God is in our lives to bring about real joy. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Again, he's drawing attention to the idea like, no, really. It's not just, yeah, you didn't literally die, but in every other way you did. So if that's the case, why would you still submit to its rules? Now, that's not a... I'm sure that could be twisted to use like, well, I don't have to obey the rules of the world. I don't have to obey the government. I don't have to obey the church. I don't have to obey my mom and dad because I died and so I'm not going to submit to the rules. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about those elemental forces, the spiritual forces of the world, the concepts, the principles, and the principalities, the, the whole package of worldly thinking. Why would we still submit to the way it operates if we died to it? And he's encouraging us to leave it behind that we might have a full life. And not just a full life in this life, but, late, but in the afterlife. And Jesus goes on. And actually, I've got a couple more scriptures here I'll share with you before I go on. Um, Ecclesiastes 5.12. I used to love this one. Used to as if I don't anymore. Huh? That made a lot of sense. Uh, but when I was a laborer, this was, uh, I often thought of this. Sweet is sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Or some, some translate it, the wealth of, the, of the, uh, the riches of the wealthy man permit him no rest. And it just this passage about wealth reminds me of this, that, that in the pursuit of certain things, we become obsessed about it. Uh, I've really battled in recent months uh, in different times in my life the ability to sleep. BG talked about it a few weeks ago. He's like, hey, if I'm starting to lose sleep over issues because I'm toiling over them, whether it's my riches, my way, my stuff, what's going to happen tomorrow, what if my um, ideals aren't met, all those kinds of things. And we have to stop and go, okay, uh, maybe I'm holding some things in higher regard than I should. Maybe I'm not trusting God like I should, like Brian talked about last week. All right, I'm just going to move on here. I've got to wrap it up. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Pause. He's talking about those that would leave behind an old life. Now in certain circumstances, this could mean actually leaving relationships behind, actually leaving property behind, actually leaving a culture behind. There are magnificent stories of missionary people particularly um, you know, in the 
you know, 14th through 17th centuries that went into places and left behind their entire lives to take the gospel into other, I mean, just, wow, what outstanding heroes of the faith to be able to leave something behind. This is not a passage that excuses us from the responsibility we have to our families. That would be to take the scripture out of the context of the whole and not to, under, and not to take the heart of God into the consideration, but rather that people will leave things behind in order to pursue the gospel, although for some people that literally happens. I've shared with you the story of my friend, Abdullah Jamal, AJ, and he was in India. He was uh, uh, in a Muslim-dominated part of India, and uh, he, his, he moved to Dubai. He was working there, and he attended one of our uh, Regions Beyond churches in Dubai, had a powerful conversion experience. God spoke to him in a very real way. I mean, he, was, he, he actually went, he, he went up to the front. He was, his wife had become, was a Christian, and uh, he went up to the front to get her because he would attend, but he'd sit in the back and she'd sit in the front. And he went up front uh, to get her, and some people asked if they could pray for him. And he said yes, and he shared with me, this was his exact thought. He said, they will pray for me, and they will feel that I am even better than they are with his Muslim faith. He believed that by their impression from laying hands on him would, would, would be that, okay, this guy's got it together. But instead what happened, when he, and he allowed them to, he allowed them to lay hands on him and pray, uh, God went right to his heart and just nailed the one thing that bothered him in his Islamic point of view was that there was no forgiveness. There was no forgiveness for sin and he always struggled with that all his life. And in that moment, God spoke to him in his mind audibly and said, I'm the God that forgives you. And it wrecked him. And he became a Christian. And um, for him, that meant eventually he managed to maintain his relationship with his family for a period of time, but eventually his father disowned him. And, uh, and now he has a broken relationship. They're very sad that that's the case. But he counted the cost, and he still follows Christ. And uh, wow, it's powerful. But Jesus goes on. Uh, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Okay, so he's saying, well, you will leave behind this, but you will gain more. And we could draw a lot of interesting ideas off of that, that God give, he brings the lonely into family, the scripture says. We find a lot of family in the church. Um, things like that, I don't think it's meant to be entirely material, what he's saying, but he goes on to say, with persecutions... So you're exchanging the old life for some persecution and something different and the age to come, eternal life. So then he's drawing attention to you. There is eternal life, but you've got to leave the old behind. And then he wraps it up with this. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Would you stand, please? I'm going to pray and wrap it up. I'll leave you with that. Mr. Jeff Wald will pick up next week and maybe elaborate on that just a little bit more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. God, what it teaches us. and It, it can be heavy. It can feel kind of heavy. <laughs> God, I, I, uh, I ask that you, you would remind us all also of your love and your grace and your mercy that, yes, we wrestle with these things and we want to do the right thing and we screw up a lot. And but God, we know that you have mercy every morning for us and grace. And so, Father, I pray that you'd continue to lead us and guide us and Father that you would be loving on each one 
Lord, as they contemplate these things. And God, help us to be a people in the middle of all this chaos and polarization. God, you would help us to be a people that is a bright spot, a source of light and life to the world around us and to one another. Not a place of controversy or political maneuvering, but a place of hope and a place of peace and joy and the things that are of you. Father, continue to lead us and guide us. Bless each one this week as they go about their business. Lord, I pray that you'd be stirring in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.